Welcome back to the Community Online Podcast. This week, we're joined by teaching pastor Ian Simpkins as we continue the series, This is the Way. If you're new, we'd love to learn your name. Simply text CONNECT to 630-793-6399 and we'll send you more information about community. Remember, you can always find us on Sundays streaming live at communityonline.tv. We hope to see you there. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Hey, everyone, welcome. My name is Ian Simpkins, and I am so glad that you are here today. Before we begin, uh, I'd love to pray for us, and it's a prayer that I actually read a couple of days ago. It's called A Prayer of Approach. So I'd love wherever you're at, just take a deep breath, try and be still if you can, and let's go before God in prayer right now. God of welcome, you invite us into your family. We sit at your table and savor your word to us. Help us, God, to receive the nourishment from your word that we need today. We thank you and we love you and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Okay, quick question. Do you know what the word of the year was in 2013? In fact, in the chat, go ahead and make your best guess. What was the word of the year in 2013? Are you ready? Here's what the word of the year was in 2013. The word was selfie. (laughs) I remember when I saw that, I thought, that's it. We're doomed as a culture. It's over. Selfie. How is selfie the word of the year? Like 15, 20 years ago, a selfie wasn't even a thing. Not only was it not a word, it wasn't a thing. Some of you might be surprised to know that there actually once was a time in history where you would actually ask another human being to take a photo of you. That, that to me, just feels like a different universe at this point. Because now you go on your news feeds and it's, just, it's filled with people trying to capture that just right angle photo of themselves, right? Uh, but it doesn't always go well. For example, uh, look at this lovely photo. Here she is holding the hand of her lover, having like a lovely date out, and it seems like a great photo. You might be thinking, that doesn't even qualify as a selfie, until you look at it from a different angle and realize, <laughs> you can't unsee that. That's, just, that's strange, right? Or there's another trend that I've been seeing where people are pretending that their loved one is like taking a photo of them, but they don't, they don't want it, right? Like they're being coy, like this guy right here. Like, no, 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 don't, no, I'm not. But then you look in the mirror and you realize he's holding the iPad with his feet. Busted, right? <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes trying to take a selfie just turns outright dangerous, like this poor girl. Like that. <laughs> just love the expression of the camera. Like, can you imagine how frightening that must be. In fact, I didn't realize until preparing for this message that from 2011 to 2017, there were more than 250 people worldwide who died trying to take a selfie. In fact, in just Mumbai, India, uh, they now have 16 designated no selfie zones. One author said of this finding, our desire to be seen is literally killing us. Now, I think we... We all want to be seen, right? We, we all want to know 
that we matter, that what we do matters. The problem, I think, is when we begin to chase after that approval, to chase after that affection. Because this can, this can happen in friendships, at work, and, and even in our spiritual journey. And just at the onset, I, I want to say something. This is not an area of strength for me. I'm not here as someone who's arrived in this department. In fact, it's actually been quite a lifelong struggle for me, the seeking and striving, the chasing after approval and affection of others. Because this, I found, can be a real barrier to walking in the way of Jesus, which is exactly where this title came from. These first Christ followers weren't first called Christians. They were following Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and kind of the outside world was noticing the peculiar way that they were living and they decided that we need to come up with the term for how to describe them. And all throughout Acts, we see that the term that they designated for these first Christ followers was followers of the way. They weren't just believers of the way. It wasn't just about some intellectual ascent for them. They actually lived the way of Jesus. And so in this series, we've been unpacking what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the best collection of teachings from King Jesus. And so he climbs a mountain, he sits down to teach them, and then he delivers his manifesto about what the kingdom of God is actually like. Now, last week we talked about how Jesus raises the bar in our lives. And today I wanna go after our motivations. This next section here in Matthew chapter six uh, begins with something of a thesis statement. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, verse one. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your father in heaven. Which as a quick aside, anytime Jesus says, be careful, we should pay attention to that. We should tune our ears to that. And I think the key to this entire section can be found right here to be seen by them. That I think is the key to this verse and this entire section here. Jesus is gonna go after our motivations. Now, just to say it out loud, I think that we are all hardwired for affirmation. I think that's deeply embedded in all of us. The desire for affirmation is not a negative quality. In fact, think about like little kids. I have a one and three-year-old and one of the phrases that I hear most often out of their mouths is, watch me, look at me, watch me, which is so amazing because that's like most of the time all I want to do. But every once in a while, like what they want me to watch them do is eat quietly or they'll say, watch me, watch me. And they're just watching TV. But there's this deeply embedded sense in them that, man, I want, I want my father's affection and attention. But I think the watch me of childhood grows into the notice me in adulthood. Does that resonate with anyone? Does that make sense? Notice the work I'm doing. Notice the strides that I'm making. Notice the effort that I'm putting in. Does anyone feel the weight of that? Gosh, I just want my effort to be noticed. I believe like deep down in our DNA, we, we are created to notice and be noticed by God. All throughout Genesis, we see this language that God is with them. He sees them. He knows them. The problem, I believe, is when we begin to chase it. In fact, uh, one commentator actually translates this first verse here in Matthew 6. He translates it this way. 
Watch out that you do not do your righteousness in front of other people in order to be theater to them. I love, I love that phrase. This interpretation is saying, don't, don't make a show of it. Jesus isn't interested in just some sort of performance. He wants your heart. He wants your entire being. So instead of asking, what can I get away with? Jesus is going to move us in the direction to ask, what do I need to get away from? See, so often in Christianity, we're kind of asking, how, how close to the line can I get? What can I get away with? And in this section, Jesus is going to instruct us, what do I need to get away from? What kind of postures, what kind of motivations, what kind of life do I need to get away from? So after this really jarring statement in verse one, Jesus goes on to give three really pointed examples. The, the first begins here in verse two. So he says, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, there's a couple of things going on here. In the first century, there was a custom that was deeply connected to the temple. In fact, in the temple, there was a room called the Chamber of the Silent. And what would happen is people would go and they wanted to make atonement for the sins. So they would leave money. They would leave resources in this box. And then later people who were in need could secretly receive from these resources and be cared for. In fact, gifts were actually left in a chest that was called a trumpet because the opening kind of looked like a trumpet. But as the years went on, the, the Pharisees, the religious elite, actually began to attach trumpets to their belts. And when they would go in to leave the money, they would literally blow a trumpet just to announce to everyone what they were doing. And everyone, of course, would hear the trumpet and they'd say, oh my goodness, look, look at how generous they're being. Look, look at how kind they're being. It was sort of like the first century ice cream truck, right? Once you, once you hear that sound, like everyone just comes running. They sometimes literally would even have a parade a parade leading to the temple before they contributed this generous act. People would gather and say, wow, look at how generous they are. Jesus says, kingdom people don't live like that. That's not what they do. Now we don't typically walk around with trumpets attached to our belts anymore, but don't we do this in other arenas, mainly social media? Like, for example, I think generosity is deeply central to being a Christ follower. I think when we read John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave, like the posture of God to us is generosity. I love the way that Scott McKnight says it. He says, the act itself is not the problem, nor even its visibility, but instead the act itself is transformed into hypocrisy and self-preoccupation when the intent is attraction to oneself. That sentence is so jam-packed with meaning, saying it's not the act or even the visibility of the act, but when it becomes about drawing attention to yourself, Jesus says that becomes a problem. That's not how the kingdom works. So a question maybe that we could all grapple with today is, am I upset when I don't get recognized for my generosity? Or when someone else does, and I don't. Do I only do the right thing if it's noticed? If I get accolades, if there's applause? There's an author named Ethan Richardson, and he makes this observation. 
It says, companies are now attempting to outdo each other with major acts of generosity, but there's a catch. They'll do good as long as they can make sure their customers know about it. Of course, we should commend companies for doing the right thing, but Jesus wanted us to do the right thing with the right motive, to please God, not to impress others. Have you noticed this? Where it's a lot of like humble bragging from companies and sometimes even individuals. Here's this really, really good thing that we've done and we've produced a really nice video so that you all know that we've done it. Is anyone feeling convicted yet at this point? Like, let me, okay, so real talk. Has anyone ever, when we would gather in person, and uh, whether you pass buckets or bags or plates, if you're someone who gives digitally online, have you ever felt like a weird conviction when the plate passes you? Like, you want to make sure the people around you know, hey, I give, but I give online. Like, I'm not, I promise I'm not being stingy. Like, I, I actually had a conversation with a guy who said that he would intentionally bring all of his offering in coins so that he could like slam it in the bucket to make the most noise possible. Just, just so that everyone around him knew, hey, I'm being generous. In fact, I heard a story about another guy who would literally make change with the money that was in the bucket. So it would like come to him, he'd pull out a bill and he'd make change just to draw attention to the act. Jesus is saying, this is not the way my kingdom works. Whose praise are we really pursuing? He then gives a second illustration starting in verse five. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Prayer is a topic that Jesus cares deeply about and he speaks about it in numerous other places. But he goes on, he says, when you pray, do not heap empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So again, Jesus here is digging into motivation and intent. And I love that he uses this word hypocrisy. So in the Greek, the word hypocrisy was actually like a theater term. It meant to wear two masks. In ancient theaters, often actors would have more than one mask they would wear in order to play multiple characters in a production. So what Jesus is saying here is don't, don't be someone, he's not making a COVID joke, I promise. It's not that kind of mask. He's talking about a performance mask. Don't wear multiple masks. Don't be different people when you're praying in public than when you pray in private. Again, he's going after our motivation because Jesus wants our heart, not just our behavior, not just our performances, not just our acts, but our souls, our, our entire beings. I love the way that Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of verse five reads. He says, and when you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production either. All these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for stardom. Do you think God sits in a box seat? I'll be honest, I read that and that just like cut to the core. God doesn't sit in a box seat. He's not, he's not impressed by the show. He wants our hearts. Now, again, just to be clear, Jesus is not against visible public acts. In fact, in chapter five, he said, let people see your good deeds so that they glorify your father in heaven. So people need to see these deeds at some point in order to glorify God. Jesus went to the synagogue and taught publicly. He praised a widow for giving everything that she had. In order for Jesus to praise her, he had to have 
seen that. Again, he's not against visible acts of service. What he's going after here is the heart, is the motivation. He's warning against the temptation to use these acts as a way of gaining approval from others and from God. Here's, here's kind of an example. Um, has anyone seen what I would call like the Instagram devotional? I mean, here's, here's sort of the setup. You've probably seen this in your feed somewhere. Um, it's, it's always like early in the morning and it's typically a selfie, right? And the, and the Bible is open and the light is coming through perfectly and you have your mug with hot tea and it says hashtag, you know, me and Jesus time or whatever. And again, I'm, I'm obviously not against quiet times or devotions. Keep, keep doing that. But is it possible that sometimes our motivation to make sure everyone knows that we're doing our devotions, that everyone sees how diligent, how committed we are, is going after the wrong motivation? I've often been really convicted by the words of D.L. Moody when he said this. He says, my experience is that those who pray most in their closets generally make short prayers in public. He says, in my experience the people who have the kind of vitality and surrender to King Jesus that he's talking about here, they, they actually don't feel the need to make a big show of it in public. Again, Jesus is not opposed to long prayers or public acts, but he's going after our hearts. Jesus says, focus first and foremost on closeness with God. And I would say to us, church, don't confuse activity for intimacy. They're not the same thing. And I can tell you from experience, it's a terrible trade-off. Activity is a terrible trade-off for intimacy. God, God never intended for us to do for him without doing with him. We pursue intimacy with God first and foremost. So then Jesus gives a final illustration here in verse 16. He says, and when you fast, which is interesting, he doesn't say if you fast, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, it was customary, it was expected that they would be fasting. In the first century, in fact, it was common for a lot of devout Jews to even fast bi-weekly. So why? Like, why is fasting so significant? Why of three illustrations is fasting one of the ones that Jesus gives? I love the way that John Tyson puts it when he talks about fasting. He says, fasting reinforces our true desires and reorients us to the presence of God. Fasting can dethrone King's stomach and lead us into a space where we can examine and reorder our desires, to examine and reorder our desires. That, that's what Jesus is going after here, not just some behavior modification. He's saying, man, when our desires are out of whack, when they're out of order, it always leads to problems. It always leads to destruction. That's the nature of idolatry. Idols aren't just awful things. They're often very good things that we make ultimate things. When we get the order out of whack, it doesn't work. And again, Jesus is going after our motivations. He's challenging us to examine why we do the things that we do. He's challenging us to loosen our grip on the ways that we've done things for the approval of others. Is anyone feeling convicted yet? 
What are the ways that you seek the approval of others? Or maybe even the approval of God. When it comes to fasting, it's, it's not nearly as common nowadays anymore, at least from food, but we all kind of know about the Facebook fast, don't we? <laughs> like again, we, we need to keep social media in check. Like I'm all for stepping away, deleting the app for a season or forever, whatever, whatever you need to do. But have you noticed there's this trend to like announce that you're taking a step away from Facebook before you actually do it? Has anyone, is anyone maybe guilty of doing that? Like, hey, just so everyone knows, I'll be stepping away for a while. I just wanted to make sure that that was clear. Jesus is maybe saying, whose approval is that for? Who are you trying to impress with that? What's the point? What would it look like for us maybe just to step away, to create margin and space, and to not announce it? In each of these areas, we're invited to wrestle with this challenge. Don't exalt yourself with what was meant to humble you. Don't exalt yourself with that which was meant to humble you. Giving humbles us because we acknowledge that we're merely stewards of God's resources. We're stewards of whatever it is that he's entrusted to us. Praying humbles us because it acknowledges that we're small and ultimately we're not in control. I think we've all felt that this year. It's a reminder, God, that you're on the throne and I'm not. Fasting humbles us because we acknowledge that we are frail and utterly dependent on God minute to minute and his sustaining grace. I mean, think about that. That last breath that you just took, that's a gift. That's, that's not owed any of us. It's a gift. Giving, praying, fasting is meant to humble us. Don't exalt yourself with that which was supposed to humble us. So the million dollar question is, how do we actually know if we're seeking the approval of others? How do we actually know? Well, I, I wanted to get really practical for a minute and give you a few questions that have been really helpful for me in sort of grappling and pulling back the curtain to ask the difficult kind of surgical question, is this me? So I wanna offer a couple of questions. And if you're a note-taking type, maybe you wanna write these down. Here are five questions that we can ask to sort of illuminate this question in us. The first is this. Um, you're motivated and unmotivated in your work, friendship, church, etc., by the praise or lack of praise of those around you. Can anyone relate to that one? Number two. Your decisions are often driven by what others will think. That one, I'll be honest, stings for me a little bit. Number three, you're easily discouraged, irritated, or angry when your efforts are not appreciated by others or when others receive credit for something you have done. Has anyone else gotten a pat on the back for the work that you did or the idea that you came up with? That, that's a good thing to grapple with. Number four, you only portray the admiral aspects of your life to those around you. Is anyone guilty of this? That your, your newsfeed, of course, is like the highlight reel of your life. I'm not saying to air your dirty laundry to everyone all the time, but there, there's a temptation to present ourselves in a way that's, that's not actually true to who we are and what's going on. And then number five, your relationships only go so deep that your struggles are not revealed. Do, do you have a hard time actually being honest about the difficult? parts, the, the parts filled with grief or sorrow or frustration or anger. This list could go on and on, obviously, but I think it's, it's a helpful starting point for us to examine what's really going on 
in our hearts. And if you're feeling convicted by any of those, that's okay, but please don't be discouraged because you are not alone. Problems we don't know about are problems we can't fix. To be honest, I'm convicted at different parts of my life by all of those. Now, I don't want to stop with just highlighting the negative ones. I also want to share with you five that could be maybe characteristic of someone who is who's living this out well, who is seeking God's approval above everyone else's. So here are five markers of a person who is, approved, who is living this out, seeking the approval of God above the approval of others. Number one, you find joy when God is glorified, even if you receive no attention or praise in the process. That's a great marker. That's a great indication. Number two, you are excited for those who do well and compassionate and gracious toward those who fail. I think those two in tandem is really, really important. Number three, you are honest about your struggles, failures, and sin, recognizing that you are a work in progress. That's the good news of the gospel. It's not about pretending that we're better off than we actually are, that we're doing better. The the cross frees us to say, man, I'm really struggling in this area. Number four, uh, you do not feel the need to portray a certain type of life on social media and do not need a certain amount of likes or comments to feel good about yourself. Oof, that one hits. And then number five, you seek to know and pursue what Christ values more than climbing the ladder of success and seeking what the world values. I don't know about you, but that, that feels like freedom to me. That feels like the kind of life that I would love to live. And of course, we can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's the kind of thing that I think is worth us pursuing. When we stop fighting for our own glory, we become a powerful witness to a hurting and divided world. When Jesus says, seek first my kingdom. He's saying everything else will be added, but seek the first thing first. What Jesus is ultimately urging his apprentices to do is to pursue God, to pursue God first in everything, not just with our Sunday mornings, not just with our like spiritual activities, but in everything. And I find it particularly interesting that over and over and over again, Jesus promises this, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He, he doesn't say that we should give and pray and fast because it's the right thing to do. Like we almost expect him to say that, don't we? Like, hey, do these things because, come on, you, sh- you should be. That's the right thing to do. He actually says there's a reward. He promises a reward to us. And what is that reward? The reward that Jesus is speaking of here is true intimacy with the Father. It's closeness with God. Jesus is both the map and the treasure. He's saying you're pursuing all these other things, but what your heart actually longs for is closeness with the one who made you. So maybe a question we could grapple with this week is how will I pursue intimacy with God this week? How will you pursue intimacy with God this week. It could be anything. It could be a more dedicated Sabbath day. It could be a commitment to prayer or fasting. It could be joining us for the Turn the Page Bible experience. It could be a private act of generosity. Whatever it is, take a next step because here's what I found to be true. One word from God is worth more than a thousand words from anyone else. Do we actually have the courage to slow down long enough to listen, to lean into how God might be stirring in our lives because here's the scandal, friends. We already have what we're chasing. God's affection 
for us is not based on our performance for him. Why do we spend so much time chasing what we already have freely in Christ Jesus? We already matter to the one who matters most. You can't be made valuable because you already are valuable. You have unsurpassable worth because you've been bought with an unsurpassable price. In Christ, we're fully seen, we're fully known, we're fully loved. He looks at us, scars and all, and says, child, daughter, son, you are loved. Sky Jathani actually wrote a book about the Sermon on the Mount. And I think he puts it brilliantly. He says, in this selfie culture, we must hear Jesus' reminder that what is done in secret is what matters most. Real intimacy, whether with another person or God, requires privacy and shuns publicity. God is our only witness because he has become our only desire. The more we develop this intimacy with God, the less we will strive for the affirmation and attention of others, including strangers via social media. We will also discover a secret that eludes so many. Our lives do matter. Not because someone noticed our post and liked it, but because God is always with us, noticing every moment of our lives. Friends, that is really, really good news. That the God who spoke the universe into existence crouches down and says, I see you, I know you, I love you. You, friend, are far more than your best or worst moments. God looks at us and says, you are beloved. What would change if we actually believed that? If we actually lived as if that was true and sought God before and above anyone or anything else because God's affection for us is not based on our performance for him. And that is really, really good news. Let's pray. God, again, I confess that this is an area of struggle for me, God. And for anyone watching or listening right now, God, would you move and convict in a way that only you can? Would your Holy Spirit heal the parts that are broken, that are toxic to us and others? God, help us to see you both as the map and the treasure itself, God, to pursue you above everything else, before anyone else, God. And help us to rest in the scandalous truth that in Christ we are known and seen and loved beyond measure. We thank you, God, and we love you. And we pray all these things in the beautiful healing name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen.